I was worried when the first reading began. I thought, I did say 2 Timothy, right? I didn't say 1 Chronicles, did I? Uh, And of course, the great thing about preaching here from 2 Timothy, rather than 1 Chronicles, is that 2 Timothy is bang on the money, isn't it? And there's no difficulty crossing the hermeneutic divide. I guess it's almost the smallest possible gap from 2 Timothy to a gathering such as ours this morning. Of course, the terrible thing about preaching here is that we're all here to crit each other's talks and to give each other marks out of 10. So let's get that out of the way. Give me a low four. Uh, Let's get on with a task in hand uh, for all of us to listen to God breathing out his word to us, to teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, how much we need the work of your spirit in our minds to open our minds to be willing to receive the truth of your word and how much we need the work of your spirit to change our wills so that we be ready to live in the light of what we see today so please work in us by your spirit for Jesus sake amen so my text for this morning comes from uh, verse 21 of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and it is a four-word phrase useful to the master Can you see that phrase there, halfway through verse 21? It's Paul writing a personal letter here to his young ministry uh, apprentice, his trainee, his minister in training, and he is telling him how he can be useful to the master. I guess you too want to be useful to the master, don't you? I mean, there's no higher privilege that we could think of than to be an instrument in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. No greater privilege than to be at his disposal, to further his plans and purposes, to be available to him wherever, whenever, for whatever he wants, to be useful to the master. But I want to circle around those four words for a little bit before coming into land and give a little bit of the background here in 2 Timothy because the first thing to say is that there are two Gospels on offer in Ephesus. One is expressed just two verses before our reading in chapter 2, verse 18, where you'll see that some people in Ephesus are saying that the resurrection has already happened. It's some kind of swerving from the truth, some kind of distortion that's being peddled in the pulpits there. And it seems to be some kind of claim that what we would consider to be lying in the future for Christians, for the heavenly realm, is to be fully experienced now whether that is a freedom from sickness or a freedom from sin or a freedom from a dirty body or or whatever. The other gospel is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul talks about the promise of life, life to be sure. And chapter 1, verse 10 talks about that life being life and immortality because death has been abolished. But this life is a promise. It's a matter of promise, something in the future. Two Gospels, resurrection life now and resurrection life promised. If you like, the already Gospel and the promised Gospel. A few years ago, a friend of mine was at a Christian town-wide youth rally. He'd taken along all the youth group from his church. And the message that was presented at the front of this rally went something like this. Do you realize how Jesus wants to help everybody? He wants to pour out his amazing love on us all. And with Jesus, your life will be easier and your problems will disappear. 
my friend was absolutely furious. Furious was what being said and furious that he'd taken his youth group along to it. Uh, so he wrote to Uncle Nige because he was so cross. And he wrote this, I imagined a horde of happy teenagers leaving the event, having been a caressed by a false Jesus and suddenly rejecting Christ as, any, as soon as any trouble came their way. It really was the worst sort of man-centered evangelism, pernicious and heartless. That's the already gospel. Two gospels then, first of all, the already gospel and the promised gospel. And behind these two gospels lie two loves. Come on to chapter 4, and you'll see in verse 10, for Demas, it is love for this present age. The problem with the lethal gospel of the other teachers is that it's all about love for this world, this present world. Obviously. Because if they are saying this world is as good as it gets, if there's no future resurrection because we've got it all now, if there's only this world, then all I love is going to be here and now in this world, stacked up, up around me on the supermarket shelves of this world. The already gospel is saying at all costs you've got to be kept here as long as possible because this is it. You've got resurrection already here. Whereas the other love in 2 Timothy is in chapter 4, verse 8, where Paul talks about loving the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love for the future appearing of Jesus. As Christians, we know what the future holds. We know what is coming in the future. It's the judge and king. That's what's coming. And when he appears, he's going to bring with him the life that is promised. Life that will appear when Jesus appears. So, of course, it's his, his appearing that I love because it's that promise of life that I'm holding on to. So, two Gospels, the already Gospel and the promised Gospel. And those two Gospels fit hand in hand, hand in glove with two loves. Love for this present world and love for the future day. And, of course, what I love determines what Gospel I preach and I say that because as well as these two Gospels, there are also two models of ministry in 2 Timothy. And if you look down to our passage, verse 20 and 21, Paul calls these two models of ministry honorable use and dishonorable use. The picture in verse 20 to 21 is a posh house, a kind of Downton Abbey sort of house. The kind of house that we get all the time on a Sunday night telly in the UK. It's that kind of soporific Sunday night costume drama that apparently we love. It's, it's a house that's got an upstairs and a downstairs. <laughs> and imagine in this posh house there are two types of household implement. There's the, the kind that makes its way upstairs and there's the kind that stays downstairs in the kitchen. There's the implements that you'd find on the banqueting table and there's the stuff that stays down to chop the onions. And you don't mix up the two, not without a major health risk. Now, in a house like that, of course, a, a wooden porridge stirrer can't become a silver candlestick. It can't change its makeup. But Paul is saying in our passage that an individual can. Somebody can, verse 22, flee youthful passions and instead pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and so on. 
In fact, you can so completely clean it up that it changes from being a plastic milk carton into being a cut glass wine decanter. One of the students at Cornhill was speaking on these verses a little while ago, and he was describing his bachelor pad, which only had one large bowl in it. <laughs> I mean, he had other things in it. it was, he, <laughs> of all the large bowls he had, there was only one. That's what I mean. So that one bowl had to act as his salad bowl when he has a dinner party, and also his sick bowl when he has a tummy bug. But he says it's okay because he always puts it through the washing machine. The, sorry, the washing up machine. All I'm saying is if you get invited to Adam's house for a meal, decline the salad. <laughs> now, Paul is saying you can clean yourself up. You can cleanse yourself from dishonorable use to be a vessel that is our verse, our phrase, verse 21, useful to the master. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that Timothy has got to be very different from the other guys. He's got a different gospel. He's driven by a different love. And he's got an entirely different model of ministry. You see, they're already gospel. What they preach, verse 18, it's all swervy stuff. They swerve from the truth in what they teach. Their ideas are upturning some people's faith. So Timothy is to do what, verse 15? He's to rightly handle the word of truth. Literally cut the word straight when they're bending it all over the place. They're bending it completely out of shape, so it's no use whatsoever. But he is to be as straight as a die. When they're way off course, he's to hit the target. Put some clear blue water, Timothy, between you and them, between what you teach and what they teach, between what you love and what they love, from how you operate and how they operate. Cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable for honorable use so that you can be somebody who's useful to the master. It's interesting then, isn't it, that Paul tells Timothy as he sends him into this church to sort it out, the place he is to begin to cleanse the church, verse 21, is by cleansing himself. That's striking. As one young church leader said nearly 200 years ago, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. That's the, that's the best way Timothy can start to cleanse the church. Cleanse yourself. This is how Timothy can be useful to the master in the nitty-gritty of normal church life. This is how we can be useful to the master in our churches and in our future life and ministry. This is how we can be useful. And we're going to see the two things that Paul tells us. The first thing, well, they both come in verse 22. The first thing is we are to run from or flee something. And the second half of verse 22 is that we are to run after or pursue some other things. You want to be useful to the master? Here are the two things. First of all, run from, verse 22, youthful passions. And you might think that Paul means sex. But there is something else on Paul's mind. Look to verse 16. Avoid irreverent babble, he says. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, 
Verse 25 is to correct his opponents with gentleness. I think that Paul is talking about what young men often enjoy, and that is a good argument. The kind of person who here at Moore College, and I guess this is the same here as at Cornhill, the kind of person who puts their hand up, too, hand up in a lecture a bit too quickly and a bit too often. And the girls are all thinking, what is his problem? <laughs> He's always got something to say. He's always spoiling for a fight. Is it more than solving a puzzle. Now, that's the sort of youthful passion, the argumentativeness that Timothy is being told to run away from. Don't misunderstand. Paul's very clear. Lines have got to be drawn. Some teachers in Timothy's church have got to be told to be quiet. So not quarreling doesn't mean not correcting or don't stand up for the truth, but it does mean a radically different tone when you correct. Every conversation has a history, doesn't it? It always builds on previous contact, earlier conversation, the, the pre-existing relationship. And it's easy, isn't it, when you're in a conversation with somebody to assume that if they're wrong on one issue, they're always wrong on everything. Impetuous, willing to divide over minor issues, making every discussion a matter of personal honor. Another hill I'll die on. And it all pours petrol on the fire. How prone we are, and young men especially, and maybe college has exacerbated this in you, how prone we are to be doctrinally right but relationally wrong. We want to belittle the opponent rather than wanting to persuade them. We want to win the argument more than we want to win the person. And Paul says, run from all that kind of immaturity, because that fits with the, the kind of behavior. It, it fits with the beliefs of those that you're supposed to be patient with and correcting gently, that you, where you're seeking the change of heart, because you're being sent to work with people. I say to students at Cornhill, say, say I was to meet you in five years' time, and you're working in a church, and I ask, you know, how's it going? What you're teaching at the moment? You will think, I say to the students, you will think I want the answer, oh, I'm teaching two kings, or just started a series in Exodus, or I'm using my old college notes on Amos, or whatever. But the right answer, of course, is people. The what you're teaching actually is a who you're teaching. You're somebody with the Bible in your hand for the sake of teaching, rebuking, correcting, training people. You've got the gospel of Jesus Christ on your lips for the sake of people. So people are made wise for salvation as you present Jesus to them. Ministry that is useful to the master runs far away from youthful passions from quibbling over words, from stupid arguments, from splitting hairs, because that's the kind of thing that false gospels are into. We want to win people. That's our, that's our mission. Of course, accuracy matters. College triple underlines that to us every day, doesn't it? But accuracy matters because people matter. And being useful to the master, ready for ministry, means running from youthful passions. I dare any of you to put your hand up and ask a question in class today. 
Secondly, if you want to be useful to the master, Paul tells Timothy he's got to run towards, verse 22, pursue, and there's now a list of 14 things. He's to pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. He's to be kind and patient and gentle. Be Christian. And again, this is strikingly different from the ideas and the behavior of those who are peddling some other version of Christianity. Paul's saying, be distinctive from them. How? How are you going to be distinctive? Well, the list, I think, is you'll be distinctive with normal Christian maturity. That's what the list is, I think. It's the marks of a Christian. So it's just worth being specific, isn't it, that being a Christian minister doesn't trump being a bog-standard Christian. Becoming a church worker doesn't stop you being a church member. Leading others doesn't mean you somehow graduate from being led and following a master and being at his disposal, available as his servant, wherever, whenever, for whatever. And in particular, in this list of things you are to pursue, right at the heart, verse 24, is that the useful servant is to be able to teach, able to correct opponents, verse 25, with gentleness, able to string words together, ready to say the right thing, the true thing. That is why at Cornhill in London, here at Moore College, at Cornhill City, this is why we're focusing on producing competent workers who rightly handle God's word, isn't it? For sure it's with gentleness, but we don't want you wimping out of doing it. Why? What is the aim of this? Well, it is others' salvation. That's where Paul ends this letter, little paragraph, isn't it, in 25 and 26? That's what he's to be running after. He longs that others are saved, that they come to a knowledge of the truth, end of verse 25, which, of course, is one of the way the pastorals talk about being saved, coming to a knowledge of the truth, led out of deception, escaping from being captured. And the Lord's servant is more concerned for that thing than for his own good standing or reputation or status, that others are saved. There was a news story a couple of months ago. I don't know if you saw it. It was um, a YouTube clip of two boys who were trying to save their dog from a constricting snake. Uh, the dog was completely motionless, and the snake was wrapped all the way around its body. And the dog was completely helpless, just standing there, couldn't move. Uh, no way it could break free. And these two boys, they're only about 10 or 11, were trying to pull the snake off the dog, trying to unwind it from around the dog's body uh, to set the dog free. And eventually they managed to do it, and, and they pulled it off, and there's the dog standing. He suddenly realizes he's free and, and goes bounding off. That is the picture, I think, here, right at the end of our chapter. Paul wants Timothy to help people to escape, people who need to escape. He wants Timothy to set people free from the constricting snare of the devil. How's he going to do that? Well, not by arguing and quarreling, but by patiently teaching and correcting with kindness, with gentleness. As he rightly handles the word of truth, people can come to a knowledge of the truth. 
because knowing the truth provides escape. As God speaks, as, as the Bible is carefully being listened to, he is pulling off the snare of the devil so that people come to their senses, suddenly realize they're free and bound off to serve the master. That is your ministry. That is a cleansed ministry. That is a useful ministry. It's quite a modest ambition, isn't it, to be useful? I mean, imagine your tombstone, Nigel Stiles, useful. <laughs> Not to achieve a great work, but to do a good work, a useful work that comes as a direct outcome of right teaching. Let me just finish by directing you to chapter 4, verse 11. Later in this letter where Paul is telling Timothy to come and see him and to bring somebody called Mark with him. And he says of Mark, chapter 4, verse 11, that he is useful for ministry, useful to the master, I presume, just as in our text today. Now, of course, this is the Mark who wrote the gospel according to Mark, and he's also the Mark that Paul and Barnabas had a row about in Acts chapter 13 and 15. Do you remember? Paul thought he was a deserter because he'd left Paul and Barnabas right in the middle of a church-planting mission trip. And so Paul later on didn't want to take Mark, and Barnabas thought he was worth a second chance. Now look down to chapter 2, verse 4, because around verse 11, Paul is listing the names of deserters. He's saying, everybody's deserted me. We think you know exactly what he'll say about this deserter. As when he mentions the name Mark, you think, well, I know what he's going to say about Mark. He's another person who deserted Paul. So isn't it striking what verse 11 says? That Mark is now useful. Useful for ministry. Useful to Paul. He's somebody who had deserted Paul and Paul's gospel, and Paul's methodology of ministry, but I guess Mark is somebody who has now cleansed himself to be useful. Aspire to be useful to the master. John Wesley, in a diary entry about 250 years ago, wrote these words, Lord, let me not live to be useless. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father God, let us not live to be useless to you, but instead to be useful to you, our Master. Please help us then to flee, to run away from youthful passions. And please help us to pursue these lovely characteristics. Please help us to be able to teach, to correct opponents with gentleness that people may be saved. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.